Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Katrina Spade, founder and CEO at Recompose. Now, if we look at end of life as an industry, for centuries, we've had a binary decision. You either cremate or you go through traditional burial methods. The issue with both of these methods is that they have significant ecological implications. Either you're burning and releasing carbon and greenhouse gases into the air, or you're burying in a traditional wooden casket, and then there's all of the negative implications of what that does underneath the soil. What Recompose does is gently convert human remains into soil. And by using nature's principles, we can not only sequester carbon, but we can also improve the general health of the soil. And in fact, Recompose has calculated that if people choose their end-of-life option versus the traditional methods, we can save over a metric ton of carbon per person. It is a wild episode, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen. Without further ado, please enjoy our episode with Katrina Spade, founder and CEO at Recompose. Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Katrina, let's jump right in. What is Recompose and why is it important? Recompose is a public benefit corporation that I founded in 2017 after a couple years of development and planning. And we're working to bring a new form of human disposition to the public. And more specifically, we've designed a way to transform human bodies into soil as an alternative to cremation or burial. What particular problem set are you working on solving? I think there's really two problems. The first is that we've been stuck with two options, cremation and burial, for a long, long time. And the problem with being stuck with cremation and burial is both of those have a harmful impact on the planet in different ways. Cremation through emissions of carbon and particulates and mercury and burial because most of the time when we bury someone, we're pumping them full of embalming fluid and then burying them in a concrete box in a metal or wood box. And sometimes there's plastic involved. And then we take good care of that cemetery by mowing it and watering it for perpetuity. So we've got two kind of harmful options, which in a way would be fine if people loved those options. If people felt, you know what, this, the imp- impact is worth it because I love cremation. But few people feel that way, and that's the second problem. There's not a whole lot of meaning for many people in either being burned up after you die or being buried in the ground. So there aren't many people I speak to who spend time exploring this category of industry. So I'd love to rewind just a second to the story before Recompose. What's the Eureka moment? Well, there's sort of a Eureka moment that I had when I was in graduate school for architecture, if you can believe that. Um, The thing about architecture is that it's not just about buildings, it's also about systems and how humans use systems. And so I was feeling particularly mortal because I had recently turned 30. And I started to just wonder what my family would do with my body when I died. 
And I come from a non-religious family that doesn't have a specific custom that goes with the death of a loved one. So it was like, oh, well, you know, we'd probably choose cremation because that's the default now. And by the way, deep cremation has become the default in the United States. It's more than half of bodies are cremated after death. And in Washington State, for example, the rate is 86%. So we're seeing already this huge rise in cremation. And it's mostly because people are like, I don't really want to be buried. I guess I'll choose the other option. And so I started looking into the funeral industry because, well, first of all, it's quite a fascinating industry in a lot of ways, but also because I was just curious about my own body when I died. And then a friend of mine knew I was looking at this question and she called me on the phone and said, are you aware that farmers can compost whole cows as a way of recycling them back to the earth? And that was my eureka moment because I realized immediately that if you could compost a cow, you could certainly compost a human being. Interesting. So your friend tells you about cow composting and you spend what I presume would be a a bit more time investigating and understanding how that works. So if you fast forward to kicking off research and development here, how did version one of Recompose materialize? Yeah, I spent a lot of time researching the practice of what is called livestock mortality composting. And then I spent a lot of time in grad school specifically from a design perspective, thinking about what kind of place we might want if it's not a crematory. And crematories aren't very beautiful places in most of the United States. And if it's not a crematory and it's not a cemetery, like what what is it that we want when it comes to a place to honor our loved ones after they've died and take care of the body itself? And I was specifically focused on the urban populations and the urban centers because, you know, in rural anywhere, you have a pretty pretty good option of something called green burial, which is where the body is just buried in the ground without embalming fluid and without a fancy casket and a concrete liner. And I've always loved green burial because it's a very simple return to the earth, but at the same time, it takes up a lot of land. So I was focused on creating an urban equivalent to green burial. So as I focused on the urban centers, I was like, okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to create this new option, let's really have it be something that celebrates the city that's in the city. It's not out in the boonies somewhere. And then what does that place need to have? So so that was kind of the beginning of the thinking. And then taking the principles of livestock mortality composting and applying them to humans were very similar from a biological standpoint. But of course, we have different emotional and cultural needs than your common livestock. So it was about creating a sort of sense of ritual and an appropriateness of caring for the human body, but using the same principles biologically as farmers use for animals. And this all was part of my thesis in grad school. So my thesis project when I graduated after three years of architecture school was called A Place for the Urban Dead. And it was the beginning of Recompose. And that was 2013. And then, in two, wow. yeah. So then, in, to just fast forward a little bit, 2014, you know, I'd been working nights and weekends on this idea because my friends and family were all like, "You should keep working on this." And in 2014, I applied for and received the Echoing Green Fellowship. And Echoing Green is like an early stage funder of just big ideas. And all I had was an idea at that point. And I was, you know, when I applied, it was interviewing with a bunch of folks from Barclays in New York. I was like, we're up on the 40th floor and I'm sweating through my suit. And 
telling them, I, I think we should work on human composting. And so the fact that they were all sitting around the table nodding, and then I got the fellowship, really said to me, things have changed. And this is not about your friends and family thinking your idea is good. This is about people really wanting something new when it comes to the care of the dead. So that was a huge moment, of course. Interesting. So you get the fellowship, and then you did your thesis around this proposition. How do you start? Do you get cadavers and then test the process used on cows, on cadavers? How do you now take the next step? I think it's safe to say that it's all been about finding the right people for the next step. And so in 2014, I reached out to a professor of forensic anthropology at Western Carolina University, which is in North Carolina, because a friend of mine had a contact for her. And I reached out to her. Her name is Dr. Cheryl Johnston. And I said, "Um, hi, you know, I'm working on this idea and I'm looking to test this concept, which is essentially a concept of accelerated natural decomposition. And she immediately was excited because her role as director of this forensic anthropology human decomposition facility was to study the decomposition of the human being of human beings of cadavers and so we immediately decided to partner and test out early early prototype of the recomposed system just to show that it, that it was possible so yes you basically it was about finding the right collaborators that, that had the the infrastructure set up to receive cadavers for research and that was in 2015 and then Fast forward a couple years, 2018, we partnered with Washington State University, and this time it was with the soil science department, and we knew we needed to run a much more robust pilot in order to bring this idea to the legislature. And so in that pilot, actually Recompose and Washington State set up the cadaver donation program as part of that study itself. And so a lot of red tape took a lot of time making sure we were were communicating clearly to families and dotting our I's and crossing our T's. But in the end, we set up the program itself. So after you got the approval from Washington State University and the state at large, you have cadavers to work with. I'd imagine then there's some pressure to prove the safety and the efficacy of the process. Is that true? Definitely. I mean, the really good thing is that we had decades of work and research by agricultural institutions showing that it's a very safe process and a very sustainable one to compost livestock. And so we had a bunch of research. Again, it wasn't directly human related. So that was the key. And so we set up the Washington State study very specifically to prove that human beings can be safely put through this process I mean, dead ones, obviously, that there'll be no harm to either the humans doing the work or to the environment after. We actually looked at three specific questions regarding the safety and and effectiveness of the process. And the big categories were pathogens, heavy metals, and pharmaceuticals. And so during the study, we were able to check off each of those categories that, yes, dangerous pathogens are killed off during the process. Again, we know that from decades of work in livestock, but it's important to know that that's the case with humans as well. Okay, heavy metals are coming in vastly under the EPA's limit for heavy metals like mercury and copper. So check. And then with pharmaceuticals, we were actually pleased to see 
a 95% reduction in the pharmaceuticals during the process, which, you know, the reality about pharmaceuticals in our environment is they're everywhere because of the way our wastewater systems work. So death care can't solve that problem. But to know that we wouldn't be contributing to that problem was really great. And so when we came to the Washington State Legislature in 2019, it was with this checklist of the three big questions of safety. And yes, we've made sure to check those off. And here's how. So you check the three qualifiers. You go through all the necessary obstacles on the legal end. Can you just walk me through what the end-to-end experience might be for a loved one who wants to choose Recompose as the default option before cremation and any other alternatives? What what will that look like? So Recompose Seattle will be licensed as a funeral home. And so if a person died, you would call us just like you would call any funeral home. And I think for many people, they're so excited about this option already that I think many families will know ahead of time that this is what their person wanted. And so there may be some, we're making the option of prearranging the service or the service and prepaying for it. So your family might all know how excited you've been about this. And on the day that you die, your loved one would call Recompose Seattle. Then our staff will go pick up the body at the place of death and store it on site in refrigerated storage. As you might know uh, or guess, embalming does not work with uh, natural organic reduction because what we're doing is actually encouraging natural decomposition. So instead of embalming a body, we store it in a refrigerated space. And then we'd schedule a time for the family to come in and have a ceremony like a memorial service, gather there, take in what we hope will be a really beautiful place that we're creating right now, and actually participate in the activity of laying the body into this vessel. And the vessel is the place that will house the body over the, about a month's time with a mixture of wood chips, straw, and alfalfa. And it basically creates this perfect environment for microbial activity. And over a month's time, the microbes break down the body and and the wood chips and the straw and the alfalfa. And what you have at the end is a lot like the topsoil you'd buy at a local nursery. So in about a month, the family will come back, and if they want to, they can take that soil home and grow a tree. If they'd prefer, Recompose has partnerships with conservation organizations, and we can donate the soil to those organizations. So they can; it will still be used to like nourish a garden or um, a forest. Katrina, this is by far one of the most interesting businesses I've heard of to date, because in addition to the environmental impact, which is super important. In many ways, you're actually pioneering a completely new ritual around end of life. And in many ways, I can hear that some parts of this new ritual are inspired by processes and mechanics that feel native and familiar. But there's also a number of parts here that you kind of have to create from nothing, right? So I'd love to actually dive in a layer deeper. How else are you thinking about cultivating ritual here? It's such a good question. And to be honest, I've wrestled with it for years now. And I think one of the ways I like to kind of release some pressure for Recompose itself is to say, 
we know that this will evolve over time. And what we're excited to see is how families take the basic framework for ritual that we're trying to create and make it more theirs and add to it. So for example, what I like to think is that by creating kind of a pathway through, for example, just through the space, we're giving families a way to feel like it's ritual. I had someone once said that, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but like ritual is simply doing something physical that has deep meaning. So walking from one place to another can be a ritual if there's deep meaning to it. So essentially anything can be a ritual and we have this opportunity to to design whatever we want. At the same time, I'm very aware that we would never want to over-design. And so we're waiting to see kind of how families bring their own emotions and experience to the work. When we think about designing ritual and and how to have something meaningful, we're usually starting with the idea of transparency, meaning there's sort of trying to strip back any confusion or judgment that might be lingering around the idea of someone dying. There's a pretty strong tendency, I think, for folks to feel guilty or judged when it comes to the current funeral paradigm, if you will. There's a way you're maybe supposed to act at a funeral. Probably there's something you're supposed to wear. You know, we're not maybe even sure what those ways are that we're supposed to act and feel, but obviously there's someone that knows all of that, right? Well, in reality, there's like a million different ways you might feel when someone dies and a lot of different ways to act and to celebrate someone's being gone or to grieve it. And so to just first of all, strip away this idea of judgment And then by being as transparent as we can with the process, we hope that we'll empower families to feel a sense of lightness, I guess, is about what's happening is the best way I can put it. So that will start when we pick up a body from the place of death. I think that our staff with like a little bit of training and thoughtfulness can really make that experience very different from the current. A lot of people tell me when they're father was picked up from the hospital. Some guys come in, zip them up in a plastic bag and off they go. And it just feels like the most awful moment. And I think there's no reason not to redesign that moment and take everything from there. So who is recomposition not for? So the process is not for someone who has died of a prion disease, which is a a very rare type of disease. Jakob Kratzfeld is one of those diseases. If someone were to die of that disease, the local health department would know it's a really, again, a very rare and quite dangerous disease. But someone who's died of that disease should be cremated. It's not a fit for natural organic reduction. And likewise, if someone has died of something like Ebola, a huge outbreak, the CDC is following it, those folks shouldn't be embalmed and buried either, probably. They should actually just be cremated directly. So we don't have that happening right now. But if it were to happen, something like Ebola would not be a good fit for this process. And then finally, there's a type of radiation treatment for cancer. I don't think it's very common, but it's a physical radiation ball that's inserted into the body. And if someone had one of those radiation balls in their body, that would not be a candidate for this process. Gotcha. I just want to get a slightly broader take on how you're thinking about impact at Recompose. Does environment 
stack up at the top of the totem pole. Would love to hear your thoughts about how you're thinking about impact at Recompose. I think it's fair to say the environmental impact is huge. Like we've determined that for each person that chooses to be recomposed instead of cremated or buried, there's a carbon savings of over a metric ton. And a great deal of that savings is due to sequestration of carbon. And so there's this huge potential if we can scale to have millions of tons, metric tons of carbon saved every year, which won't solve climate change alone, but is a really important tool, I think, in the toolbox. And it's been ignored, like sort of the environmental impact of our death has been ignored thus far. And so to just say, okay, we are going to take that on and solve that problem is really important to me. But I think if I'm really honest with myself, the meaning and the change in people's emotional relationship to the end of life itself could have more of an impact, might, might be more important than the actual physical environmental impact. I think you could even argue that all of our human woes, war and greed, et cetera, stem from a fear of death, a denial of mortality. And if that's the case and we can start to get at that a little bit and start to ease the fear of death and, and have people more comfortable with the effect of their mortality, I mean, the sky's kind of the limit on what could change, I think. Katrina, I... I must say, this is one of the most thought-provoking conversations I've had in, in quite some time. And I I would be shocked if that feeling isn't shared widely from our audience. So thank you for all this. And without further ado, I am so excited to introduce the lightning round. Uh, the lightning round Ooh. is pretty simple. I have four questions teed up and you'll try to answer them in 60 seconds or less. You ready to go? Wait, 60 seconds per, per, per question. question <laughs> okay. Okay. That's no problem. All right. The I'm first ready. one is a softball. What's your favorite podcast and why? Oh, I'm going to say two dope queens. What is two dope queens? The easy answer. Two dope queens. Look at oh that. Okay. They're just these badass women just talking about the black experience and they swear a lot and they're hilarious. Oh my God. It's amazing. All right. Adding it to the queue. Adding it to the queue. (laughs) The second question is I'm interested in demystifying the art of lobbying because to many it's unclear kind of what that is and what it entails. And given your recent success in helping introduce new legislation in Washington. What does it take to run a successful lobbying effort? I probably have about 25% demystification on this side over here. I was lucky to hire a great lobbyist. So I'll start by saying that. And I didn't know what lobbying was either, but I was told I needed a great lobbyist. She has relationships with everyone in Olympia, it seems, and can have a conversation with them in a quick minute to try to make something understood. We had lots of 15 second, 30 second conversations with legislators explaining what we were trying to do, boiling it down to the basics of this is safe and effective. It's about choice and it's about sustainability. Boom. That's it. 
But in general, we enjoyed a lot of public support and enthusiasm for this process. And we also have the benefit of knowing it might make you uncomfortable the first couple times, but if we say it enough, you're probably going to get through that and think it's pretty interesting. So oh, I don't think I've demystified lobbying, but it's a really interesting skill set. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I think if anyone were to Google you, you can see that there was definitely a ton of drummed up support from the public. And when it comes down to it, legislators should be responding to the things that their constituents want. So yeah, I think we saw that happen. It was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, pleased to say that it did, it did work. And I hope, you know, other states follow suit. Um, The third question in one article, you're quoted saying, so our goal with recomposition is just to add more choice when it comes to death of a loved one. And then a little bit later, in my vision, we have a dozen options for disposition in the next 10 years or so. What other options might we see? I don't have 10, but my recent favorite is someone suggesting that you just get tossed in the Puget Sound, maybe weighted. I would assume you'd need to be weighted down. And the crabs eat you. And I was like, that's so simple and so beautiful and so exactly regionally appropriate. Nice. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, The last question, and it's a question we ask all of our guests. If you weren't working on Recompose, what problem area would you be exploring? Oh man. God, I don't know this one. It's so, it's so strange. Like when I know why I'm working on this, but it's weird that I'm working on this. And yet it seems to be my life's work. And so I honestly think if I wasn't working on Recompose, it would be, it would be something as random and oddball as this, but it it. could be anything. Uh Well, Katrina, you handled question one through four without any issues, without problem. This has been one of the most fun and thought-provoking conversations, like I said before. I just want to thank you so much. And I'd like to roll out the red carpet if you have any final plugs, anything you want to leave with our listeners. The floor is yours. Oh, yes. I have a couple of things. The first thing is that if you are inspired by what I'm saying, and you want to invest and recompose, there's an opportunity to do that right now. And you can find out all about it on our website, which is www.recompose.life, L-I-F-E. So come on over and check out our investment opportunity. And then the second thing is, if you love what we're doing and you just want to stay in touch, come to the website and sign up for our newsletter. I send it out about once a month, and I usually have some good updates of where we are and we're rolling right along. Things are moving quite quickly. So it's hopefully will be a lot of fun to stay in touch. Katrina, thank you so much for coming on again. We'll have to do this, I don't know, in 12 months or so, right around when Recompose Seattle is getting ready to launch. Sounds perfect. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, If you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode. 
and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.